We're in the latter half of the fourth chapter of Ephesians. We started in verse 17 last time. So I want us just to rehearse these verses once again. Let's read them together. Paul writes, So I tell you this, and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do. And that, that word Gentiles is a reference to the unbelievers, the pagans, and so forth. It's a generalized term. Don't live any longer as the Gentiles live. He's already told us in the first three and a half chapters what God has done for us and how we have a brand new life. And he's incorporated us into his body called the church. He's given us all a place in his church. So there's no, no reason. He says, I insist on it. Don't live any longer as the Gentiles live. Then he goes, he says, in the futility of their thinking, they are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to uh, sexuality or sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. You, however, did not come to know Christ that way. Surely you heard of him and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, he says, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with his own hands, that he may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Amen? If you look at your notes, I've given you a little quiz this morning. A short two-question quiz. It's not very hard. What is the only reliable evidence, the only reliable evidence of salvation in your life? How do you know? Is it because you made some profession of faith in the past? Or is it evidence of a present life that reflects him. What do you think? Let's have a vote. How many vote number one? How many vote number two? Some of you aren't voting. <laughs> yeah, it's number two. It's number two. 
We are no longer what we were. Somebody say hallelujah to that. Aren't you glad you're no longer what you were? But we are now something wonderfully different. We are new creations. We are born again. The Apostle Paul says, if anyone be in Christ, that means if you, if you have trusted him really and you've been incorporated into a relationship with him, old things have passed away, new things have come. We're new creations. We are awesomely different. And new creatures, what should new creatures act like? New creatures. <laughs> Should new creatures act like new creatures? Absolutely. Absolutely. And therefore, as new creatures, we put off the old and we put on the new. Say it with me. Put off the old and put on the new. A new nature demands new behavior, doesn't it? Yes, absolutely. This is why... We read in verse 17 that we are no longer to live as the Gentiles because we are no longer among that group of people. We're no longer counted among them. We've been rescued from that domain and we've been transferred to the kingdom of God's Son whom He loves. And now we are His in the fullest sense of that word. The old self is destructive to community. The old self is destructive to fellowship. It's destructive to the unity. It's destructive to the life of the church, the body of Christ. The new life, on the other hand, always promotes life. Think about that. This new life always promotes life. And this is Paul's concern at this point in his letter. If you go back to verse 1 of chapter 4, he tells us that we're to live a life worthy of our calling. That's this new life that he's called us to. That's this new life that he's made possible for us. When we become believers, it doesn't necessarily mean that automatically all is well with us. When we become believers, we enter in to a new state of being, a new state of existence. We enter into what's called the fight of faith. How many of you have any familiarity with the fight of faith? Hell yeah, all of us should. We're in this fight against the old human nature that we live in. We live in this earth suit with its appetites, its proclivities, its tendencies, and it's a constant battle. Have you ever noticed that this old self wants to go that way and you have to drag it this way? Say, no, 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 we're not staying in bed this morning. We're getting up. I'm taking you to church, buddy. <laughs> yes. We enter into this fight of faith. And that's why putting off the old and putting on the new is so critical. Putting off the old, putting on the new means simply change. It means change. And he's going to identify a number of arenas of change for us. He starts off in verse 25 when he says, put off falsehood and speak truthfully to one another. Put off falsehood. Stop lying. Stop lying and start speaking the truth. 
Is that a good thing? Sure it is. How many know that we lie in all sorts of ways? We invent ways to lie. We're very clever. Let me just enumerate some of the ways in which we lie. Now, obviously, we lie outright, don't we? We just tell, tell a bull-faced lie. But also, we lie by not speaking. We lie by allowing something to be said to which we know is wrong. We lie with a wink or just a look. We can lie by exaggerating. We can lie by cheating. We can lie by foolish promises. We can lie by betraying confidences. We can lie by flattery. We can lie by making excuses. The old yeah, but, yeah, but. We invent ways of lying. And we could go on and on and on, can't we? But why does Paul start with this, this, this issue? Why does he start with falsehood, do you suppose? Why not stealing or something, something else? Why does he start with falsehood? Who are we created, to, who are we recreated to be like? Jesus. We're born again because God is in the process of restoring the image that he originally put in us. We're, we're to be like Jesus. And if we're, to, if we're to be like him, we should walk in the darkness? Light. We should walk in the light. That's right. To know God, to have fellowship with God, to be like him, demands truthfulness. In 1 John chapter 2, we read this. The man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But if anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in him. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus walked. It's walking in the light. Does that make sense? The most essential characteristic of the Christian life. What do you think the most essential characteristic of the Christian life is? What is it? Love? Truth. It's truth. Without truth, you have nothing. You have nothing. You don't have real love if you don't have first what? Truth. Jesus says, I tell you the truth. Truth. The most essential characteristic of the Christian life. So you have to ask yourself, am I a person of the truth? Do I tell the truth? Or am I a liar? In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, Paul writes this. God wants all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. That's right. And a real understanding of the truth should lead to application. What do you think? 
You really understand the truth? Should that lead to application? Yeah. James says what? Don't be a hearer only, but be a what? Be a doer. Jesus phrases it this way in John chapter 13. He says, now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. So we have the truth. We need to act on the truth. And the Christian who lies gives the devil a foothold in his or her life. Remember, Satan is called by Jesus the father of lies. In John chapter 8, he's, he's confronting his enemies, the religious leadership, and they're, they're claiming that God is their father and Abraham is their father. And he says, no, 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 no. Your father is the devil. Mm, not exactly designed to win friends and influence people, is it? Telling them the truth. Satan is the father of lies. Does lying complicate our life? What do you think? Does it? You tell one lie, and then unless you repent and recant and take it back and confess the truth, what do you do next? You've got to tell another lie, and then another lie. And then pretty soon you can't remember what you said. You don't know what the truth is. Lying also shows the despicable nature of sin. Paul writes that in Romans chapter 7, verse 11. He says these words, sin deceived me. Sin is deceptive. And lying demonstrates that. I don't think there is anything more despicable than a liar. You can do anything to me, just don't lie to me. Just don't lie to me. We have no use for the liar, and yet lying is the most common of all sins. That's the truth. And lying is destructive to the life of the church. How can there be unity how can there be true fellowship? How can there be true community if we're lying to each other? It's simply destructive and antithetical to the life of the church. Now, it also has to be said that telling the truth doesn't require us to tell everything we know. Some people have shared things with us in confidence. That's reasonable. We don't go out and blab it to everybody else. You have to consider the impact of what you're about to say, even though it's the truth. What impact is this going to have on that person's life? What impact is it going to have on this situation? And certainly, we shouldn't unburden our, all of our ill feelings on those we dislike. Well, I'm only telling you the truth. No one else would tell you. <laughs> you ever been on the receiving end of that? I have. Lots of times. You have to be careful. You have ill feelings towards somebody, it doesn't give you warrant to go unload on them.
Paul now takes up the, the question of anger. Lying, he starts off with. Now the question of anger. Again, a very common source of sin and disruption in the church. It is ugly when Christians harbor anger toward each other. It is absolutely ugly and destructive. Verse 26, he says, In your anger, do not sin. Now, anger in and of itself is not sinful. Anger is a very natural human instinct that God gives us all. It's what we do with the anger. We should always be angry at some things, but not everything. Should we be angry at evil? Should we be angry at sin? Such as sin in our own life. Should we be angry at injustice? Should we be angry at immorality? Should we be angry at ungodliness of every sort as we encounter it? Yes. So there are some things that we should be angry at, but there's also a wrong way of being angry. A wrong way of being angry must not be what you could call ill-tempered or bad-tempered people. I had a conversation with a, with a man not too long ago, and we are talking about his attitude and his temper. And I was talked to him about his apparent ill-tempered, ill-temperedness. And his response was, well, pastor, I've always been this way. I was born this way. (laughs) You were born this way. I agree with that. But you are a Christian? Yes. You've been reborn. You're not the same person anymore. Put it off. Put it away, that anger. Put it off. Any anger that is excessive, violent, uncontrolled, self-defensive, self-serving, resentful, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, that's tantamount to murder. If you harbor anger in your heart towards your brother, you are subject to judgment, the very same judgment that murder would be subject to. You have heard it said, do not murder. And anyone who murders is subject to judgment. I tell you, don't even harbor anger in your heart towards your brother. So he, in effect, he equates, Jesus equates this kind of anger with murder. And if any of us have experience that kind of emotion, at some point, you've been so angry at somebody that if you'd had a weapon in your hand, you probably would have used it. Lost all leave of your senses. We're to deal with sinful anger. We're to deal with it. I love that phrase. Well, I'm, I'm dealing. I'm dealing with my stuff. Really? How are you dealing with it? Most people aren't. Dealing with it is a euphemism for I'm ignoring it. That's been my experience. Well, I'm, I'm dealing with my stuff. Oh, okay. 
Well, how are you dealing with your anger? How should you deal with your anger? Remember, it belongs to the old self. It belongs to the what? Old self. And what are we to do? Put off the old self. When are we to do it? Right away. Not this afternoon, not tomorrow. Right away. Put it off. Put it off. Put it off. Oh, but Pastor, you don't know. I just, I just, this is so hard. Yeah, you're in a fight. You're in a fight of faith. You cannot do it in your own strength. If you are a Christian, the Bible tells us that we have God's spirit, the spirit of the living God in us. Is that true? When you became a Christian, did you get the stripped down version of the Holy Spirit or did you get the fully loaded version? With all of his power? Is he living in you with all of his power available to us? Can we call on that power? How do you call on the power of the Holy Spirit? Holy Spirit, empower me, empower me. No. You know how you call on the power of the Holy Spirit? You take a step of faith to do what you know you're supposed to do. His power will be right there every time. I'm going to put off this anger now. Now. And he enables me to do it. I think I read someplace, I can do most things. <laughs> I can do all things through Christ who what? Gives me the strength to do it. Wow. Wow. And even the best motivated anger can sour, can't it? That's why we don't go to bed with, the, with this anger. We're to put it aside at the end of each day. No more. No more. If you're married, you don't just roll over and go, take that. No, we put it away. We put it away. If you go to bed angry, guess what happens? What have you just opened yourself up to? You've given the devil an opportunity to have at you. Most people just don't even realize it. You go to bed angry, the devil's going to have a field day in your life and in your family. And everything you touch is going to be tainted and be affected. Now we come to the third destructive behavior that we're to put off. What was the first one? What's the second one? Third one, stealing. Just like lying and anger, stealing, sadly, is characteristic of the old self, the old godless way of living the way the Gentiles live. Put off stealing and put on what? Sharing. Put off stealing, put on sharing. Did you know, I read this and it just astounded me, that when, when we, we pay for merchandise, we buy some stuff, that fully up to a third of the price that we pay, the retailer puts on that price to cover 
the cost of loss from theft, embezzlement, and so forth. Stealing is that prevalent that retailers automatically add a third, take care of their costs, their losses from theft. Isn't that amazing? Padding expense accounts. Padding expense accounts. Reporting more hours than were worked. Failing to report income on our taxes. Reneging on a debt. Not paying fair wages. Keeping what a clerk overpays in change. All these ways are, are, are just examples of the ways in which we steal. There is no end to it. Just like lying, stealing is no different. Stealing must be forsaken because it too is a form of falsehood. And what's behind stealing? What's behind stealing? Selfishness. Selfishness. It's the sinful doing desire to have without honest effort. The moment we begin to think in terms of having rather than truly and honestly earning, we begin to open the door to some form of dishonesty. What alternative does Paul propose? Stop stealing. What is she, what's, his, what's the alternative? Work. Work. What a novel idea. Work. Do you know that work is a divine principle? Jesus said of his father, my father is working even today. When God made us and made the garden, put us in the garden, he made us to lay around, enjoy ourselves, and just take it easy, didn't he? No, he put us in the garden to do what? Work it. And the word that he, Paul uses here for work is a strong word. It's more like labor. It's work with all your might. Because the natural tendency is to work with all of our might. No, it's to cut corners, to slack off. Well, you know, who's, who's looking? I could just kick back and sit on my butt for a little while. My behind, I'm sorry. <laughs> Tragic, isn't it? Stealing. Work. We're not to live as sluggards, nor are we to live as parasites. We're not to build ourselves up at someone else's expense. No, we are to be concerned with others. We're to be concerned with others. We're to show that the object of our lives is not just our own ease. It's not just our own pleasure. But good, faithful, hard work to provide not only for our needs, but also for the needs of others. I always encourage people, when you're, when, you, when you're managing the money that God has entrusted to you, we're stewards, aren't we? It's not our money. Whose money is it? It's God's money. 
that we're to be good stewards over it. Part of being a good steward is that you, you, have, you, you have some that you use to pay your expenses. You have some that you save. You have that which you give back to the Lord, your tithes and your offerings. And you should have a margin account. A margin account is just a little bit you put away regularly, not a lot, because it adds up. For the day when someone comes into your life who has a need and you can help with that need. How many know that God brings needy people into our life fairly regularly? And, and he does so because it's a test. Am I going to ignore that needy person? Or am I going to be prepared so when that needy person comes into my life, I have something to help? I have this margin account. Just a little bit of margin, a little bit of margin, a little bit of margin adds up. Does that make sense? So we're to work hard. We're to work hard to provide for our needs, but also to be willing and able and prepared to share with others that God brings into our life who have needs. The fourth change in the Christian life, put off speaking unwholesome talk. Put off speaking unwholesome talk and put on what is helpful for building others up according to their needs. Our speech should change along with everything else. Paul uses the word unwholesome. That's a very colorful word in the Greek. It's a word that really would describe rotting fruit. Isn't that a beautiful picture? Putrid, rancid, rotten fruit. Gossip. Slander, profanity, vulgarity, off-color jokes, stories, any form of abusive, abusive speech. To us as Christians, these should be just like as repulsive as rotting fruit. Your ears cannot handle that. Your soul cannot handle that kind of language because it wounds our soul. Abusive language, foul language, unwholesome talk, just like rotten fruit. As Christians, we must recognize the importance of guarding our what? Tongue. Have you ever said anything, those words have gone out of your mouth, and you're going, oh! You can't get them back. James talks to us about the tongue in James chapter 3, doesn't he? How many read that passage? The tongue lit on fire by hell itself. He says, no man can tame the tongue. Man. A wicked, wicked thing, the tongue. You can create blessing and you can cut people apart with the tongue, can't you? The tongue. Listen to the psalmist. The psalmist says this, 
Set a guard over my mouth, O Lord. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Mm. Psalmist knew about the tongue, didn't he? Knew about the power of words. In Matthew chapter 12, Jesus talks about it also. He says, how do you, how do you know a good tree? By the fruit. A good tree produces good fruit. How do you know a bad tree? It produces bad fruit. Okay? And so in, that, in the passage, in that context of that passage, he talks about out of the, the uh, abundance of the heart, if you will, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth, what? Speaks. Oh, I never meant to say that. Yes, you did. Oh, I didn't mean that. Yes, you did. Because if you didn't mean it, you wouldn't have said it. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Don't forget that. Don't forget that. And the only way to cleanse our speech is by filling our minds and hearts with what? This book, these words, these pages. The more you read, the more you meditate, the more you memorize, you're filling your mind and heart with God's word, God's truth. So that when you speak out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth should speak then what? Cursings or blessings? Blessings. Falsehood or truth? Truth. If you're not in God's word, you're not going to have a heart that's full of God's thoughts, God's words, God's truth. It's just that simple. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 8, Paul says this, Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, and all that is excellent and worthy of praise, let your mind, what? Dwell on these things. Wow. Wow. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Is your speech encouraging? Do you speak encouraging words? Do you speak words that are appropriate to the need? Words that are gracious? Well, if you had my kids. <laughs> you can still speak graciously to your kids. And a powerful motivation to put off the old and to put on the new is to know that when we don't put off the old and put on the new, the Holy Spirit of God is grieved, is grieved. Who would grieve the Holy Spirit? It's kind of akin to the question that God asks, who would rob God? And the Israelites feigned Ignorance, they feigned the fact that they were innocent. And he said, no, no, you've robbed me in the tithes and offerings. Same thing is true. Who would grieve the Holy Spirit? It would never occur to us. Oh, I, I wouldn't grieve the Holy Spirit. By the way, you know the Holy Spirit is not a force. 
You know, if you're a Star Wars aficionado, <laughs> when Obi-Wan says, Luke, use the force. It was really crazy. When, at the height of the Star Wars phenomenon, back in the 80s, Christians were going, oh, wow, that's Christians. That's the Holy Spirit. No, it's not. That's ancient Hindu mysticism. That is not Christian. That does not reference the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's not just an influence, not just a power, not just a force. You can't harm a force. You can't insult a power. You can't grieve an influence. But you can grieve a person, huh? You can't hurt a person. How do we grieve the Holy Spirit? Well, there's a number of ways we grieve the Holy Spirit. Failure to recognize his presence in our life. How many of you, it's your favorite thing to be ignored? You can hardly wait to get ignored again. You go out just looking forward to being ignored. When people ignore us, is that painful? Does it grieve us? The same thing is true with the Holy Spirit. When we fail to recognize his presence in our life, we in effect ignore him and he is grieved as a result. Wherever we go, if you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit living in you. Wherever you go, whatever you do, you take him with you. You know that. He doesn't stay at home. You take him with you. It's kind of akin to wherever you go, whatever you say, whoever you hang with, you take your mom with you. Ooh. I've said and done and gone a lot of places I would be absolutely ashamed for my mom to know about. We grieve the Holy Spirit by having a unholy manner about our life by living as the Gentiles do. He tells us to, to take this off and put on this new self. We grieve the Holy Spirit by failing to respond to his promptings, to his leadings. If I've heard this, I've heard it a hundred times, a thousand times. Was that me or was that, the whole, was that God? Was that me or was that God? You're not going to know the difference unless and until you've been spending time with him. You get to know his voice. You get to know his thoughts. You get to know how he thinks and what his will is. And then you'd be able to recognize his promptings, his leadings. But if we ignore those and don't know them, he's grieved. He's grieved. Why should we not grieve the Holy Spirit, do you think? Why should we not grieve him? Well, first of all, because of who he is and what he's done. Who is he? He's God. He's the third person of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. All co-equal, all co-eternal. Three persons, one God. That's who he is. He is the Holy Spirit of God, Paul says. But he's also our helper, isn't he? 
He's our teacher. He's our comforter. He's our advocate. He's the divine resident in our hearts. And he is the guarantor of our salvation. And grieving the Holy Spirit will ultimately lead to the loss of the gracious manifestations of his presence. Now, what would be, the, what would be an example of a gracious manifestation of the Holy Spirit's presence in my life? How about his love? We grieve the Holy Spirit, we lose a sense of his love. It's as if the Holy Spirit steps back. We lose a sense of his peace. We lose a sense of the joy of salvation, a sense of assurance, a sense of certainty. We lose the ability to say with any measure of confidence, the Spirit witnesses to my spirit that I am a child of God. When we grieve the Holy Spirit, we run the risk of him stepping back. Do you remember, do you remember Saul and David? Saul was the first king of Israel. David was the second king. How did David become the king of Israel? Do you call? What did Saul do? Did Saul do something he shouldn't have done? Yeah, he disobeyed God. The prophet Samuel came, gave him a command. Saul half-heartedly obeyed, but not with his whole heart. And David witnessed that whole thing. God ripped the kingdom from Saul's hands, but he not just ripped the kingdom, he took the spirit from Saul. And David, in Psalm 51, says this. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Did David sin egregiously? Oh, yeah. Adultery, murder, cover-up. And in repenting of his sin, he says, because he remembers what happened to Saul, don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Now, as Christians, we're sealed. Paul says we're sealed by the Spirit for the day of redemption. So the Holy Spirit doesn't leave us. You don't lose the Holy Spirit. But as I said, you lose the sense of his presence. You lose the sense of his love, his peace, the joy of salvation, and so forth. You'll not be lost, but you will feel like it. Horrible place to be in. And the Holy Spirit will leave you to your own fleshly abilities and powers. You grieve him. He says, okay, you want to do it your way? I'm going to give you over to your way. I'm going to give you over to your own flesh. He'll leave you to your own flesh, your own power. And guess who's just waiting at the door? The devil himself. Peter says the devil is roaming about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may munch on. No, devour. You grieve the Holy Spirit, you run the risk of God stepping back. And Satan will come in 
and he will afflict. He will torment physically, personally, emotionally. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 talks about a man in the Corinthian church that he gave over to Satan for the destruction of his sinful nature for the salvation of his soul. Here was a man that the Corinthian church did not deal with. They did not discipline. And so Paul says, I'm going to do it. Turn him over to Satan for the destruction of his sinful nature for the salvation of his soul. And God does all this. He has a redemptive purpose in everything he does. Do you know that? He'll let us go. He'll turn us over so that we will come to the end of ourself. It's like the prodigal. We'll come to our senses and we'll come back knowing we do not want and we will not grieve the Holy Spirit of God again. I think most of us have experienced something like that, haven't we? Isn't that a fair statement? And then finally, he says, look in verse 31. In verse 31, he says, get rid of what? Let's read it together. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger. Can't I just keep a little of my bitterness? Can I just be raging at somebody just for a little while? No, get rid of it all. All bitterness, all rage, anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. Get rid of it. When should we get rid of it? Right away. Stop, get rid of it. As soon as I recognize it, get rid of it. Is that possible to do? The Bible seems to think it. I don't see here Paul saying, mm, you know, take a couple weeks to do that, a month, two months. No, he says, get rid of it. Get rid of it. Get rid of it. Get rid of it. Put off the old. Put on the new. Instead of those things, he says, be what? Be kind. Be kind. Be compassionate. Be compassionate. Forgive others. Just as in Christ Jesus, God forgave you. Mm. Put off the old, put on the new. We're new creatures, new creations, new behavior. We're going to come to the table here in a moment. And we're going to take those elements. If there's anything you need to put off and you know about it, if during our time together you experienced, ouch, you can put it off right now. You can put it off right now and put on what God says to put on. Then come to the table. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you love us. Thank you, Lord, that you paid a heavy, heavy price to get us. And you mean for us to be holy, just as you're holy. Lord, don't let us live under any illusions. 
but that your spirit convict us of our own foolishness, our own sin, our own disobedience, our own wickedness. Lord, that we could put those things off, repent of them this morning, and come to this table with clean hands, rejoicing and thanking you, restored in our fellowship. Lord, you know what you're doing in each one of our lives. We pray your will be done. And again, thank you, Father. Amen? Prepare your hearts for...